0: Hello and welcome to another Office Hours podcast. I'm Kevin Vela. I'm Aaron Turway. And today we're talking about Chapter 2 of Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist, a seminal book in the venture world put out by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. We're reviewing the third edition. So hopefully you've listened to the first episode where we reviewed Chapter 1. Now we're going to do Chapter 2. But Aaron and I work for Vela Wood Aaron's primary focus is venture capital. It is one of the focuses for me. And so, as a firm, we do a lot of it. So, what we're doing is we're reading the book, and each week we are reviewing a chapter here through this podcast. So, again, today we're talking about chapter two, which is
1: how to raise money. Aaron, in general, what were your thoughts on the chapter? You know, it made me feel good about the advice that we've been giving to clients for the last however many years because. I found myself reading a lot of these, um, pages and thinking, yeah, I've said that to a client, you know, a dozen times. Um, and, and there were some new things in there that, you know, maybe I haven't been as, um, explicit with clients about before, but it's nice to see, um, you know, some VCs taking a strong position one way or the other. I think that anytime you do something within a business,
0: eventually best practices will emerge. And we have enough experience here. We've done hundreds. I mean, Aaron, you and I have worked on hundreds of venture deals together. Yeah. So as a firm, we've done, cl- you know, closing on thousands of venture deals or a thousand venture deals. So best practices are going to emerge. And like Aaron said, it was really cool to see what we have put forth as best practices, the counsel we give to our clients to see those words here on these pages because it shows me that we're in line with some of the top thought leaders in this space. But like Aaron mentioned, they had a couple of great ideas here that I think we can pull from and help to better counsel our clients. But I wanna get into these and kind of review them. So again, we're in chapter two, how to raise money. So one key point I wanna make from page 19, we're talking about the Yoda, reference, which was awesome. You know who Yoda is, Aaron? I know. Uh yeah, from Star Trek, right? I know, I know you're not a cool guy. Is that he's on the Enterprise? I always loved Yoda. We're just gonna fly past that. There's a part that I underline where it says failure is a key part of entrepreneurship. And that's one thing that I want our clients or people listening to understand and that's okay. Failure is okay. It's actually a good thing. I have heard from venture capital guys in other countries, Australia being the one that comes to mind, to where you're really not considered ready to raise real money unless you've tried and failed before. And there's just so much learning, there's so many things in being a founder that are experiential. You can't learn them, you can't read them, someone can't tell you what to do. I I take that back, you can't learn them from a book, obviously you can learn it, but you have to learn it by
1: experiencing it. Yeah, you can't learn them by going to business school. That's correct.
0: Failure is a key part of entrepreneurship. I will take a, a moment to say business school gripe I had. When I was in law school, I took a lot of classes at business school, at the MBA school. And I'd sit on the entrepreneur class entrepreneurship classes and these professors would get up there and say things like, don't ever sell any equity in your company. Don't ever give any money away. And I always thought that that sounded silly and now here I am. and. We've been fortunate enough to go and speak over at SMU at different uh, law school entrepreneur classes, and we're always telling them, you have to sell equity. You have to raise money. Right? Right. No one's going to just give you money. Sure, if you can build a business that you're just cash flowing and you're using that cash flow to reinvest, Congratulations. Fantastic. But 99 out of 100 companies, not going to happen. So I always got real miffed when business school professors who had
1: done nothing but really invest in startups were out there telling their business school students, don't ever give up any equity. I mean, it's, it's like telling your students, you know, make sure your first idea is your billion dollar idea. Right. right. Mean, yeah. yeah. Don't go to market unless you have a billion dollar idea. Right. So I thought that was really cool. I
0: just want to reiterate failure is okay. You know, it's how you respond to failure that's going to be the most important part. Okay, so the first big point that they get into is determine how much you are raising, right? I thought this was great, Aaron, because the VC wants the company to have as much cash as possible. That's because the
1: VC doesn't care about dilution to the founders, right? Raising as much as possible is not the answer early on. Well, and if the VC can get a bigger chunk of the company early on, they're gonna pay less it's for that. It's cheaper for them. Yeah. absolutely. So VC is always gonna say that. That is not necessarily
0: the right thing for you. Now recognize this book is mostly fo- focused on later stage deals, so you have to understand that. But from an earlier stage perspective, you want to be smart and tight about the money that you raise. If it's 250, that's fine. If it's 500, that's fine. If it's 750, that's fine. And you do want a little cushion. But it's not like when you're raising a series A or series B round where you're going to ask for six months or 12 months cushion. So the way that we like to encourage our clients to find money, excuse me, to uh, set the, the raise amount is exactly what they say here. How much do you need? Get me a month by month, spreadsheet of how much you're going to need each month so i need this much much for marketing this much for development this much for rent this much for operations maybe you're taking some small salary and let's do that and really at the seed level you're what maybe Aaron, maybe 12 months out Right, right. But let's just focus on nine to 12 months. You shouldn't be raising at the seed level enough money to get you through three years, because in a year or so, you either need to be ready for your next raise or approaching cash flow positive.
1: Well, and that's the other thing is, you know, when I get clients to come in and say, okay, you know, here's how much money I need for the next 18 to 24 months. Well, no, don't do that now because that's going to cost you a lot more equity to get that money for the next 18, So let's explain months. that point. I'm right
0: there with you, man. So they come and say, all right, the next two years, we need to raise $2 million. Great. Well, what's your company worth today? Maybe, maybe if you just got out of an accelerator and you were top of the accelerator, maybe it's worth a million bucks. So now you're going to raise 2 million on a million. Right. It's so 3 you're million posts. Giving up 67%
1: of Yeah, in you're just giving it,
0: a, just not going to happen. Now, if instead we can raise 250 today on a million, so that's 1.25 post or 25%, excuse me, 20% of your business. Then let's build that business, use that 250 to scale the business. And hopefully your next round you're worth three or four million. Then you raise the remaining 1.75 million, right? Then you're giving up a much more manageable chunk. So for your early stage rounds, you want to be really targeted and you should be setting a budget and say, okay, for each month, here's the next 12 months. I need this much and then let's and then add 25% to that. And then that's the number that we're going to raise.
1: Well, I I really liked what he said, um, what they said, when they're talking about you know, you can't control revenues of your company. You, you just can't. You don't know, you know, if, if the market's going to adopt it or whatever, right. but you can't control expenses. Absolutely. And so you know exactly how much it's going to cost you. Now, of course, there are going to be hiccups along the way. You're going to have to, you know, start over with, you know, development or whatever. But it's pretty easy to say, okay, if, if we're spending $20,000 a month on X, then if we need that for 12 months, well, that's easy to calculate. You know the and they talk
0: about this. the projections are bullshit. Like everyone understands that, but it's not the projections that we're looking at. It's the inputs that they're looking at. Do you understand what inputs you need? Have you broken it out? how uh, you know how granular can you get with your revenue streams? If you just say, oh in in month twelve, I'm gonna do thirty five grand in revenue. Well, how much of that is enterprise sales? How much of that is business sales? How much is that partnership referrals? Let's really break that down. And then if it's enterprise sales, how many enterprise customers do I have? That's the real important part. Similar to the business plan, business plan conversation that they have, right. and I know that's a few pages ahead. Yeah. No one's going to read your business plan; they're just not. But if you're a venture, if if you're a VC, and someone brings you a well put together business plan, the time that the founder put into that business plan in in constructing it and understanding it, that's the value. Right. Um, I, I also I want to don't want to miss this point. We kind of talked about this, but he talks about on page twenty one. That we don't believe in ranges for fundraising process, right? It says, oh, we're gonna raise five to seven million. Well, is it five million or seven million? Right. If I say I'm gonna buy your business, I'm gonna buy it for five million or for seven million, somewhere between five and seven, that's a pretty material difference. Right. So have a focused, targeted number. If you're seed stage, you should probably be looking at expenses, like Aaron said. You can control your expenses. So look at those for nine to 12 months out. If you're A stage, it's usually 18 to 24 months. Right. Right. Then when you're B, you're probably looking at 36 months. All right, so we talked a little about fundraising materials. I think what they said is incredibly consistent. And you know, the first version of this, of this I think was written in 2011. So it's neat that this hasn't really changed. If anything, it's probably getting more focused because a lot of times we don't even see actual PDF pitch decks, we see the online ones. All right. You know, Aaron, maybe it's a link to a Dropbox to download, but a lot of times it's just a, a website that allows you to have presentations online. Almost universally, we just see pitch decks. I see executive summaries every once in a while. And I think there's value there, again, in just creating. it's if to get real concise with the information. But an executive summary feels more like something an investment banker sends out. Yes. You know, right, as a teaser prior to a full plan. But uh, 8 to 10 slide pitch deck.
1: I, I thought it was interesting. They
0: said up to 20 slides, I feel like. I can't remember that. But Prob- I can't remember where it was.
1: Probably later stage. or right. Or if it's very technical or if it's, you know, you know, biotech or pharmaceutical, I would imagine those situations you might need, um, might need to drill down a little more into the science.
0: Are they going to get into, yeah, they don't get into how to build a pitch deck. So I do not want to talk about that because I know we've talked about this on the blog and our producer will put that in the show, in the show notes. But when you build your pitch deck, start with as many slides as you possibly can. And then what you do is you take those slides and you cultivate them down to 8 to 10 and you leave the rest as backups. One of the best pitch decks I ever saw. And it was from a local founder people here know and he's raised tons of money. He had a three slide deck. He got up there and spoke, it was a 6 minute or an 8 minute pitch presentation and he spoke perfectly, the transitions were great and people were looking at him, not the deck. But the deck synthesized the information he needed to see or he wanted to present. So if you have a ton of information, that's fine. Start with the 20 or 30 page deck, get it down to eight to 10, but then make those other slides your appendices, right? I always think it's awesome, Aaron, when we're at a pitch competition or pitch meeting and an investor raises his hand and asks a question and says, well, I really want to drill on this point. And like I says, cool, let's go to slide 17 because I have that.
1: Right. Well, and I'm sure they'll get into it later in the book, but- You know, when you are pitching, when you're standing up at, you know, a pitch event or, you know, an accelerator demo day or whatever, don't read your slides. The text or the information that's on the slides should be sort of corollary to what you're saying. You want them paying attention to you and not reading your slides as you're reading them. You should have this thing rehearsed well enough. And if you're not good at pitching,
0: find someone who is. I never say saw someone say, "Well, I'm not going to invest because the main founder didn't give the pitch." Right, right. I think the the the, the investor does say, "Man, that founder knows what her strengths are." Exactly. And if her strength is not pitching, and she got her, you know, whatever her business partner to present, that says a lot about your cognizance as a founder. All right. Now, I do want to touch on the PPM note, Eric, that comes up all the time. Look, guys, you do not need a PPM. Now, we're not giving legal advice. We're giving startup advice. Be very clear about that. So if you're going out and raising money, you need to be consulting with your lawyer. You do need to give relevant disclosures. There absolutely must be disclosures. You need to be truthful with the information you're giving. Work with your attorney to give disclosures. But in this day and age, you do not need a full length PPM. And there's a lot of you know rats out there, they're gonna try and pitch you on a five or ten thousand dollar PPM, they're gonna build
1: it for you. As a startup, you don't need that.
0: Other types of investment vehicles, absolutely, PPM is the way to go.
1: And if you're a founder and you know, maybe you're just more old school or more traditional and you want a PPM, yeah, we, we can do that. Um, you know, it, it never occurred to me until I read this chapter that, you know, VCs might not look upon that favorably. It it might actually be to your detriment to have a PPM. The only time we've put together PPMs
0: here in context of a startup is if they're doing a retail placement. They're going through a broker-dealer network and they're trying to find retail investors, which is... A, a tiny tiny minority, right, of the types of deals or the, right. or the fundraising we do. Just about all the fundraising we do in early stage comes from friends and family and angels, and then later stage comes from syndicated angels and then institutionals, you know, right. VCs or micro VCs or whatnot. So a PPM, uh, again, it's they you see them from time to time. It's not a must, but disclosures at a full subscription agreement are
1: with risk factors, you know, tax information, uh, presenting info. Well- And you're going to, you know, as a founder, you're going to look at these risk factors, disclosures and all that and say, well, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to convince the investor to not invest. To not invest. That's correct. Um, But as as the attorneys on the deal, that's generally what we're trying to do. Startup deals are. it
0: It is a CYA. That's correct. Startup deals are very risky. We need to let people know about that. And to an extent, the government requires us to do that. Uh, you know, realize for those investors out there who get frustrated with these things and all these disclosures, look, we're bound by the strictures of the SEC and, and state securities laws. And so as your attorneys, that's what we're trying to do, but realize that we're doing our best within that framework. However, you don't necessarily need a full PPM. You do need to consult with an attorney, preferably a startup attorney. Yes. On that. Okay. They talk about the detailed financial model. We talk about that. The projections are bullshit, but it's building the model and understanding the inputs, real, the real value is. Then they talk about the demo. And this is a point that we make, and I know we've talked about this, Aaron. Whenever we have people pitch at our Dallas Angel Network events, I always tell them, if you have a demo, bring it. I remember one time... This guy had this really cool printer, and it was a Bluetooth slash wireless printer that you could send quick notes to from your phone. So let's just say you wanted to print out directions. You just pull up Google Maps on your phone, it prints it. It just sits next to your, you know, on your counter. Or you have a grocery list, and you just say, hey, let's go to the grocery list. You know, you're walking out the door, your wife says, here's, grab this, and it prints. And I thought that was the coolest thing. You send it from across the room, it's battery powered. He came to a pitch and spent five minutes trying to explain what this thing is, how it works, and he, he walked off the stage and I said, why didn't you just show it? If he had just started in the room and said, hey, Kevin, I've got some directions for you, pressed the button on his phone, and then I ripped off a piece of paper and walked it up to him, the whole room would have gone,
1: wow. So much more powerful. So much more powerful. Yeah.
0: Like If you have a prototype, do it, use it, show it, send it. Uh, Seems simple, but let's get that point out there because a lot of people don't do that. All right, the next thing they talk about is due diligence materials. This is important and this falls in line with the risk factors and disclosures we were talking about. Guys, these guys are going to ask a lot of questions. Now, I will say early stage investments, there's not as much due diligence as later stage. Couple reasons. One, they're not investing as much. Two, the company just doesn't have as much. You know, if the company's been around for two or three years, there's financials, there's uh, tax returns, there's employment contracts, there's corporate governance records, meeting minutes, all sorts of things that an investor request, can request for due diligence. If you're a real early stage company, you're coming out of Accelerator, you might have your corporate organization
1: docs. Right. There's not a whole lot else. Some founder IP assignments. Yeah, exactly. And and those things are
0: pretty standard. And your startup attorney will get you those. Everyone needs to assign their IP from their heads into the company. Those are called founders IP assignments. Everyone needs to be vesting their interests. All right. All the co-founders got to be vesting. Almost always, it's under a restricted stock purchase agreement or restricted unit purchase agreement if you're an LLC. But note that they are going to ask for these due diligence materials. It is not uncommon. For them to ask for a background check on the founder, there's a good chance they're going to run your name into a federal state database for criminal background and bankruptcies. So just be prepared for that. If you have any of those warts or marks on your record, that's okay. Just be prepared to explain them. Get out in front of them. Now, the same way that they're doing their due diligence on you, you should be doing due diligence on them. And this is something that I learned from one of our experienced founders many years ago. We were sitting in a room with a VC and the VC said, okay, well, we're interested. We're going to put together a term sheet. And our experienced founder, this was you know six, seven years ago from me, and The experienced founder says, great. Can you send me two or three uh, founders that you've worked with? Because I want to call them. And I thought, man, what a brilliant idea. Well, of course, it's a no-brainer now. Right. Well, so it's something we push all of our clients to do.
1: And I'm sure it, it makes the VC or the investor feel good because, you know, now that, you know, the founder or the entrepreneur isn't just desperate to take any money. They, they want to make sure that the money they're taking comes from, you know, investors that, you know, are going to be good partners. And, and so, you know, if you want to run the traps on your VC and make sure that, you know, they, they provide the service or the, you know, support that they say they're going to provide and they've been a good partner, then, you know, as an investor or VC, I would think, yeah, that's great. I totally agree. VCs should not, just the way
0: you should not be scared about your background or history, VCs shouldn't be scared about theirs either. So absolutely as a founder, ask for VC references or ask for the VCs to give you founder references. All right, I wanna move on in the chapter, they talk about finding the right VC. Now, as an early stage investor, You might be doing what's known as a party round. We see that pretty typically. Party round means no one's leading. We have lots of friends and family rounds, which we'd prefer not to do, but 50, 70% of our clients probably end up doing a friends and family round first. That's just the easiest money to get to people who believe in you. I know we touched on it a little bit last week. But once you get to a larger round, Finding the right investor or the lead investor—that's really, really important for a number of reasons. One, that person's probably going to take the board seat, right? If you're giving up, you're most likely giving up an observer seat, probably a seat on your board. So that person's probably going to take that. Two, that person, because they have so much money invested, because they're the lead, are going to be you know your partner for some period of time until they're not the lead anymore. So just going to ask questions. They're going to have um, expectations on you delivering them information, financials. Three that person might be making introductions to other VCs. We see that, we see a lot of collaboration these days among our VC clients. And then four, the next one that comes to mind is that person needs to be a resource for you as far as making introductions to customers, to biz dev partners, uh, potential employees, other VCs, uh, strategic, potential strategic acquirers. So there's a lot of reasons why that VC or that lead investor is very important to you and that goes back to asking for references. Let's see, there was a point there that said if you feel like your VC is a proctologist, run for the hills. They can get a little too deep. I have noticed the earlier the first time VCs, sometimes they just don't know what they're doing. Again, that's where your lawyer can come in and be very helpful or an advisor who's been through this before when the advisor lawyer can say, yeah, this is market, this is normal, or no, they're asking for too much. There have been a couple of times when we have felt that VCs just started asking too much and we've gone back either lawyer to their lawyer or founder to the VC and said, hey, look, I've got other people who are interested and you're asking too much or taking too much time. Do you want to move forward on this or not?
1: I want to go back just a page earlier and harp on something that we've said before, which is don't ask these VCs to sign NDAs, right? It's just, it, it looks inexperienced. Um, you know, once you get to the later stages in, in this relationship where, you know, it looks like you might, um, you know, there might actually be a deal in the works. Maybe, maybe you could get an NDA at that point, but you know, if you're sending a pitch deck to somebody and asking them to sign an NDA at the same time, no. Absolutely. It's going to look
0: sophomoric. It's going to look like you're inexperienced. So don't ask them to sign an NDA. Another point about talking with VCs, something they said, Aaron, which is interesting is please allow six months to raise money. Yeah. It's spot on. Spot it, on.
1: It takes a long time.
0: So let's let's wrap that into the point they made earlier in the chapter, was, which was don't try to raise money. Go out and say you're raising right. money. So let's talk about what the ideal situation or the what we advise clients to do. So Aaron, uh, a client comes into you and says, hey, I want to raise money,
1: right? What do you think, what would you advise next steps are and what's the process look like? I mean, off the bat, I want to know, have they talked to anybody yet? Do they have any money soft circled? Um, you know, if if they don't, which I assume if they're coming to me, they don't, um, then we start talking about, okay, how much do you need to raise, you know? What portion of the company do you want to give up? Um, you know that'll help us peg the pre-money valuation, uh, and then just sort of rough out some general terms. Um, you know, if it's an early stage deal, generally the term sheet comes from the company or the founder. Uh, if it's a later stage deal, usually the term sheet's coming from the investor or the VC. Um, so if it's if it's an early early stage deal, then we'll start to put together a term sheet and then start floating the term sheet to investors. And I, uh, they, they mentioned in this chapter, uh, something that we tell clients all the time, which is if you're looking for advice, ask for money. If you're looking for money, ask for advice. That's right. And so take a term sheet, go around to your investor network that you've developed relationships with and say, Hey, I have this term sheet. Love to get your feedback on it.
0: One of the best things you can do as a founder in raising money and working with your attorney is approach your attorney early and tell your attorney, I want to raise money at this point in time. Then as Aaron mentioned, the first thing to do is figure out, okay, how much and what do you need the money for, and then let's talk about the structure. Now, it might take a couple of weeks just to understand the structure because if you need to get caught up, if you're not familiar with the nuances of convertible debt or series seed terms or safe agreements, Hopefully you've read through this book and you will be, but that's gonna take some time. So then once you figure out a structure, or you might be tossing some structures back and forth, then you gotta go review that with your advisors, or as Aaron mentioned, anyone who might have said they were interested, you wanna go talk to them because if we're early stage and we're putting a term sheet out there, we don't wanna put a term sheet out there that's gonna be ill-received. So what we like to tell our clients to do is put together a term sheet and then take that term sheet to the people in their close network and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. We're not starting yet. I'm thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? How do these terms look to you? And then if the investor says, awesome, I want to invest, it's very easy to say, oh, great, we just opened the round. But if the investor says, no, this doesn't make sense, or I don't think the valuation's right, or I don't think the structure's right, then we say, great, let me go back to the attorney, we're still tweaking it. Then once we have it down, then you'll open the round. And that can very easily be three to six months from that point, right? Now, if you're coming to us and we're doing the whole thing for a seed round, six to nine months is not terrible. And then for an A round, with all the preparation that goes into it, I mean, you're looking usually at six months at a minimum. Heck, if we have a complicated A round and they came to us and say, all right, we've signed the term sheet today, I mean, sixty-day close is pretty reasonable. You know, yeah.
1: anything more than that, forty-five days, maybe thirty days, would be pushing. I mean, especially if you've got convertible notes outstanding that you know maybe you're trying, maybe you're not hitting the qualified financing trigger, and so you're trying to get them to convert early, and you got to negotiate back and forth with. I mean, in any given Series A round, you know, I know the first chapter of this book was all about the players, but you know, in any Series A, you've got the company, you've got, you know, the early seed investors, you've got the bridge convertible note investors, you've got the new series A investor, you've got attorneys for everybody, you've got accountants, you've got I mean, there are a lot of people that want to provide input and, um, you know, help their client um, get the best possible outcome for this series A.
0: Yeah, it, there's, let's just say someone says, I want to raise a series A, we know there's some corporate governance cleanup to do first of all, and we say we gotta convert the note holders or clean up the cap table, and we get these cap table cleanup projects all the time. Well, they might say, I don't have the funds to do it, so let's wait till we're closer to close, and we we understand that. Or we might say, hey, look, we think we know what the next round's gonna be, but we've gotta really wait until we're closer to do this because what the Series A investor wants to do is going to affect the decision making process for the corporate cleanup. So really, once you get the assignment term sheet, and I think they were good about saying, you know, once you have a signed term sheet, usually you're gonna close, and I wanna talk about that in a sec. But then you gotta go to your attorneys, get the get ready for the Series A, and then if, what if you're doing a conversion errand? What if you've got some foreign qualification issues? What if you've got some trademarks you gotta assign? I mean, there's a lot that goes on at Series A, and it's just going to take time. Thirty days if your attorneys are working round the clock and you have extreme cooperation all the way around. Forty-five days is aggressive. Sixty is probably about right. Sixty to ninety, yeah. I would say, is pretty typical. Yeah, for I closing around.
1: We just had a couple of Series A rounds that lasted.
0: We have one that from signing term sheet to executing was over six months. And yeah. that was a single investor, Yeah, right? One lead investor. Right. I guess they
1: had some follow-up, I mean, some, uh, some ROFO executions, right? Yeah, but, but the, it was, yeah, that, that one took forever. And then we had another one that felt like it did take up most of our days and nights up until right. closing. And that one was still about a four-month process.
0: Now, in our experience, if we've done, I don't know, a couple hundred of these things, Uh, You know, over the last I think over the last three years, we mapped it out. We've done I don't know a couple hundred of them. There are two that I can think of that didn't close. Only two. So that's a really good hit rate. There are probably a handful more. There's two that I can think of that we got down to the docs prepared, ready to sign. They didn't close. There's probably a handful more, maybe five. Probably not more than that. That Signed a term sheet and they changed their mind. The VC changed right. their mind, or the company changed their mind. But so let's just say it's five plus two is seven. Let's just say we've done. We have to look at our numbers in the last. I think two or three years in, like 150 of these things that are at least seven fifty. Probably not that many. Yet. I don't know, hundred of them. They're at least seven fifty. We've raised. If only seven of them fell through, that's pretty good.
1: Right. Right. Well, and I, I can think of one recently also that looked like it was dying. That we said, you know, pencils down, stop working. We're not this isn't going to close. And then it came back and was brought back to life and eventually closed. That's correct. So once a VC
0: signs a term sheet, especially a big VC, it's gone through investment committee. They're pretty invested in the deal, right? All right. That wraps up chapter two, Aaron, you got anything else?
1: Uh, The final point I was going to make is there's a good entrepreneurs note in here about if a VC ends up passing on your deal, no harm in asking them why, right? You know, if you can tweak, you know, your business model or your, you know, pitch or whatever they, whatever they rub them the wrong way, if you can tweak it to make it more, you know, appealing to investors, that's great. All right. Great point, Aaron. I want to close. Uh, remember,
0: you can find our show notes at Velawoodlaw.com. Click on blog, then podcasts, then the Office Hours podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Velawoodlaw. Follow us on Instagram at Velawood. Questions or comments, podcast at Velawoodlaw.com. And finally, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Look for the Velawood Office Hours podcast. Next week's chapter is only one page. It's overview of the term sheet, but I'm gonna leave that as just a full week because I wanna really break down a term sheet and I know they'll do that subsequent chapters, but I wanna talk about convertible debt versus equity next week. All right, thanks everyone for listening. See you soon.